please take your seat for the reading of the scripture. Our reading today, our first reading is from Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Read it again with me. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Our second reading is from Matthew 9. Passing along, Jesus saw a man at his work collecting taxes. His name was Matthew. Jesus said, come along with me. And Matthew stood up and followed him. Later, when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his close followers, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. When the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit and lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher, acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? Jesus, overhearing, shot back, Who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? Go figure out what this scripture means. I'm after mercy, not religion. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Pastor Ruth, and I am a sinner saved by the mercy of God, living in the mercy of God, and in need of the mercy of God. Amen, anybody? <laughs> okay, good. We're all, we're all in this together. I was raised in the Dominion of Canada, and when we were, started this series on building a common vision of the kingdom of God, can you see it, and we're studying the Beatitudes, this is the fifth week, I thought immediately about what it means to be in a dominion under the sovereignty of Queen Elizabeth. Theoretically, what that means when you're in a kingdom is that the king's will is done, or the queen's will is done in the territory of Canada that she controls. And uh, that seems really a really clear and easy way to think about the kingdom. Jesus grew up in Israel, where the money was Roman, and the military was Roman, and they paid taxes to Rome, and it certainly looked as if Rome was in control of the, that territory. So when he brought this message announcing a new king, and that a new king, kingdom had broken into the world, it was a radical message. This was his primary message, change your life, God's kingdom is present. God's kingdom, the place where God's will is done, it broke into the world in the life of Jesus, and then it passed as God conquered the territory of heart after heart and person after person. It spread across political boundaries and tribal territory and religious areas, and I, I sort of imagine it from space as being like when night falls on the earth and the lights start showing where there is electricity at night. God's kingdom spread. When I left the Dominion of Canada and decided to become an American citizen, I took some naturalization classes. And those classes teach you about American government and American law, and really they focus on what are the duties and responsibilities of being a citizen of the United States. And so I think of the Sermon on the Mount as really our naturalization classes. This is the essential teaching about being a citizen in the kingdom of God. This, this sermon was not just a one-time thing. This is the, the central teaching that Jesus went on teaching over and over and over in his three years on earth. He focused on what is essential about thriving 
in the kingdom of God and about the responsibility of being a good citizen under the rule of God. So our text this morning is Matthew 5, 7, as we just read it. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown or receive mercy. And the big idea today is that God's kingdom is characterized by God's outrageous mercy to us, and that mercy is supposed to flow through us to others. So let's pray and invite the Spirit's illumination this morning. Father, we are grateful recipients of your mercy. We're grateful for the way that you have come to our lives with forgiveness, offering what we didn't deserve and couldn't earn by your love. I pray today that your Spirit would open our ears and our hearts to what you want to teach us individually. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Greeks in the first century believed there was a place of bliss or a place of blessedness, and they called it the Blessed Isles. And it was a place where only the gods lived. It was like a perfect um, climate, and you didn't have to work hard. There was fruit everywhere, and it was just a place where everything came easily. But only heroes and people who had lived really pure lives could earn their way to live in this place called the Blessed Isles. And so I was thinking, I wonder what, if you asked on American streets, what, what's a blessed life like in America? What, what does a blessed life look like? I thought in many ways it would probably be the exact reverse of what the Beatitudes said. I think that they would say it's somebody who gets everything they want right now and that it's people who are satiated with the best food and the best trips and the best luxuries and entertainment. I think they would say go-getters are blessed, the people who go out and get what they want, those who take care of themselves, don't lean on anybody else, and don't allow anybody to lean on them. And I think that's at least my vision of what we hear a lot in our culture about what it is to be blessed. So Jesus' teaching takes a really radical turn from what I think every culture pretty much through time has thought was a blessed life because he he opens the gate. He draws the circle bigger. And he says, included in blessed life in God's kingdom are all the unexpected, the poor, those in mourning, those who are gentle, those who are longing for things to be set right, and now today, the merciful, they are all included in blessed life, blessed living in the kingdom. And I started our readings today with the one from Matthew where he talks about his inclusion in the kingdom because he was a most unlikely candidate to be in the kingdom of God. I want you to imagine for a minute if you were living after, in, during the Second World War in France when the Nazis occupied France. So imagine for a minute that there's someone in your neighborhood who's French, who comes and collects taxes from you, from which he takes money and then gives the rest to the Nazis. Not a really popular guy at dinner parties. Not really the person that you want to hang out with. That was Matthew. Matthew was collecting taxes for the Romans and he was hated by his own people. So Jesus' invitation was probably kind of a shock to him, that he invited him to follow him. And Matthew got up immediately, it says. It says he, he opened his home to hospitality for Jesus and invited 
others. Well, who would the others be? I mean, it says like Jesus' followers came to that dinner, but the only other people who would have dinner with Matthew are other people who would be despised, who would be part of that group of rejects. And this association of Jesus with these people is what put the religious leaders over the top with rage. And Jesus responds to their outrage with this message that these, the riffraff, the disreputable, are the very ones he came to bring the kingdom to. And then he goes further and he looks at the religious people, the ones who have spent their life going to synagogue, the ones who study the scriptures and try to live the scriptures. He tells them go and learn what the scriptures mean when they say, when Hosea the prophet said, I desire sacrifice. I desire, so opposite. I desire mercy. Just checking if you're still awake. (laughs) I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So that message hit me very hard. I have spent my life going to church. I have spent my life studying scripture. I have had the desire of my heart to be to follow Scripture, to have my life line up with Scripture, and I'm guessing that applies to many of you in this room. So I think we need to listen carefully to Jesus' words because they're kind of pointed to us. Go and learn that Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of mercy. Jesus himself was recognized more by his acts of compassion than his religious activity. And I wonder if that would be said of me. I wonder if the people in my life would say, I know she's a Christian because of her compassionate acts, or if they would say, I know Ruth's a Christian because she's always at church. God's kingdom is characterized by God's outrageous mercy that has has, has been flowing into my life and through me to others. And so... Jesus is calling me and those of you who might fit that description today to go and learn mercy. And I'm going to suggest three ways that we might learn mercy today. The first being that we have to see that we've received mercy from the source of all mercy. The word in the Old Testament for mercy, the Hebrew word is hesed. And like all Hebrew words, it's a really big meaning. It's not just one precise thing. It's a backpack that can be unpacked. And and in a lot of English Bibles, it doesn't appear very often as mercy as much as it does loving kindness or love or kindness or steadfast love or loyalty or favor and devotion. The psalmist speaks often of the tender mercies of God, and that points me to this is God's very heart towards us. His heart is merciful. It's, it's not a, uh, an attitude that comes and goes with God, that he sometimes feels that way towards us. This is God's attitude towards us, like a mother with an infant. God's mercy to us is outrageous in its depth and breadth. In Lamentations, Lamentations, a book of lament, He spends a long time describing the misery of his situation, the pain he's living in. And in verse 19 of chapter 3, he writes, My soul continually remembers it, talking about the pain he's just described, and is bowed down within me. And then he says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The love of the steadfast love, meaning has said, 
of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The mercy of God is the very foundation of hope, particularly for us in the, in, when we're in pain, when we're in a place of suffering. He says that what we can do is bring to mind the steadfast love, the hesed of God. And the mercy of God, the reason I had us read Psalm 136 is that the mercy of God is not a feeling, it's what he has done. We know the mercy of God because of what he's done. Israel knew the mercy of God because they had been taken out of captivity, because they had been kept, kept through the wilderness, because they had been given a land. And it's in God's actions that they knew and could call to mind the mercy of God today to give them hope and a foundation for tomorrow. <clears throat> this week I had a conversation with a young woman from Bethany North. And she was telling me about a story that I thought so illustrated tender mercies. And when Amy was four, she, uh, was, she was diagnosed with leukemia. And she had a large family, and they checked. Her siblings were not a match. She needed a bone marrow transplant. Her parents weren't a match. Her large extended family was not a match. So they went to a national registry, and this is 20-some 20, 20 years ago, and found a young woman in Ohio that was the exact match for Amy. And this donor uh, person, she now calls her her donor mom, her donor mom in Ohio, who had never met Amy, knew nothing about Amy, gave bone marrow to save Amy's life. And, and that's, it sounds like a pretty simple thing to say. That's a pretty big give. <laughs> I haven't done it. I know I'm, I'm on the registry, but I'm also sort of thankful I've never been called. <laughs> um, this donor mom had a small child, so there was you know, the, the expense and, the, and the being away from the child, all of that cost. Also, because of the drugs she had to take in order to donate the bone marrow, she had to put off having more children for, I think, a, a year or two. So there was a high cost that this person paid. And I thought about... God's mercy. When I look at human mercy, I often see God's mercy behind it. God's mercy came at great cost, much more than bone marrow. God actually put skin on and came to live with us. He died for us, and that is always the place that we think about his mercy, but think about the mercy he took to come and live with us, to come and experience life with us. This donor mom made a remarkable sacrifice because it was for a stranger. It wasn't for her three-year-old daughter. It was for someone she'd never met on the other side of the country. And God also went the distance. He went the incredible distance from heaven to earth. And not only for a stranger, but Romans 5 says, for an enemy. He came and offered the gift of his mercy while we were still his enemies, still in rebellion against him, still not acknowledging him, ignoring him, and even cursing him. And God's outrageous mercy was not just for one little girl, but the Bible tells us it is for all. First John says, he died for the sin, my sins and the sins of the whole world. And, and Matthew goes on in the end of this chapter to talk about God's mercy being on everyone in the same way that the sun rises on the good and the evil and the rain falls on the good and the evil. God's mercy 
like that falls. God's mercy is an attribute, a part of the character of God, A.W. Tozer says. An infinite, inexhaustible energy within the divine nature which disposes God to be actively compassionate. That's the two words I want you to hang on to. Mercy is actively compassionate. It's not something we feel about people. It's something we do. Israel had been given a really extraordinary law through Moses about 1500 BC. And in, in the world at that time, this kind of law was completely unknown because it was a merciful law. Israel's law provided for the poor. They even had a year, every 50 years, there was a um, forgiveness of debt. Imagine what that would do, every 50 years. There were laws that took care of any vulnerable people left on the sidelines by losing people in life, like widows and orphans. There was hospitality to strangers, and there were even legal rights for non-natives in the in, in the nation of Israel's law. Those were unknown at that time. But Israel was expected to pass that mercy on to the nations, and Israel really never fulfilled that calling to pass God's mercy on. They, in fact, really despised the other nations. They looked down on non-Jews. They felt spiritually superior to their neighbors. And I think there's two things that God saves his um, harshest criticism for in the Bible. One is idols, and the other is lack of mercy. In fact, the religious leaders of Jesus' day had a saying, and you'll recognize the beginning part because Jesus also said it, there is joy before God. What did Jesus say? When, when there's a repentant sinner, there's joy in heaven when one person repents. But here's what the Jewish religious leaders saying was, there's joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. Exact opposite, right? They couldn't wait for outsiders to be obliterated. Listen to the words of the prophets. Isaiah 58, is, this, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them? Isaiah 10, woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees. Proverbs 31, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Proverbs 14, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs 19, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. You can hear the echo. I'm sure you're familiar with the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, and you can see where, where he was saturated with the word of God and spoke the truth in Matthew 25 when he talks about being hungry and thirsty and a stranger and naked and sick and in prison and how they did not care for him. That this is the judgment, uh, judgment that he describes and when they asked, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not care for you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, 
To the extent that you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. The kingdom of God and God's people are recognized more by their compassionate action than their religious activity. But to learn from the mercy of God, we have to first know we've experienced it. Do you know that you're here by the outrageous mercy of God? I think there's a huge lie in our culture, and I, and I hear it. I would even call it a delusion. We're under the delusion that we are self-made people. And God's word challenges that in Deuteronomy 8 where he says, What do you have that God did not give you the ability to produce? What do you have that God did not give you the ability to produce? Are you really a self-made person? How did you survive infancy? Did you know today that the U.S. is not even in the top 50 countries for the survival rate of babies? I don't think that's what we aspire to. But we had help. We had mercy, the mercy of God through others to survive. As a kid, did you have access to clean water? to food, to a roof over your head, and access to school. I was reading in the Seattle Times on Friday, 40,000 school children in our state are homeless. 40,000 children in our state are homeless. Did you experience mercy as a child? Perhaps some of you didn't but many of us in this room did. Has being able-bodied or not suffering from a mental illness contributed to where you are? The mercy of God. Did you have help getting to college? Did your family benefit from some of the um, being able to buy homes and property. This may not apply to everybody, but I know it, it occurred in my family where we had access to property early on in Canada um, when probably minorities were kept out of that and not allowed to participate in that, and that benefited my family greatly into the future. What do you have that God did not give you the ability to produce? We will learn mercy through God's mercy, only if we recognize that we've been the recipients of his outrageous mercy, often through the mercy of others. A second way we can learn mercy is we learn from the unmerciful. We learn through our pain. (laughs) And uh, the unmerciful are not my favorite teacher. It's not the class we all want to rush out to. But if you're in the classroom of suffering, I would encourage you to pay attention Pay attention if you're experiencing a cheating business partner or a neighbor who makes your life miserable or someone who constantly criticizes and judges you or someone, I I was thinking this yesterday, I was in a situation at a dinner with someone who talks incessantly. Honestly, that's a place I need mercy. I'm an introvert. (laughs) I have a hard time when people go on and on. But being in the presence of someone who is unmerciful, we learn by looking at what no mercy looks like. And I have to remember when I'm talking to someone, oh yeah, give them a chance, let them say say a word. A little suffering. 
Suffering's a great teacher, so don't waste a drop. Learn mercy. <clears throat> I knew a woman, I worked with her in Al-Anon, who was a Christian and had married a Christian guy, and they had three kids, and they had a business, and he developed an addiction. And within the space of three years, they lost the business, they lost all their savings, they lost their home, and they lost their marriage. And this young woman ended up with her three kids living in the basement of her brother's home at, because of his mercy. And she'd had to take her kids out of Christian school and put them into the public school near her brother's home. And she said to me, <clears throat> I really feel bad <clears throat> about my kids, excuse me, <clears throat> having to attend a school with such a high rate of poverty in single moms. And then her face kind of dropped and she started to cry. And she said, I've always looked down on single parents. Now I am one. Now I'm essentially homeless, except for the goodness of my brother. Now I realize that every single parent has a story, just like I have a story. One definition of mercy is the ability to get right inside the other person's skin until we can see with his or her eyes, we can think with his or her mind, and feel with his or her feelings. And fortunately, we don't actually have to become single moms to have mercy on single moms. We don't have to be homeless to have mercy on the homeless. We don't have to be disabled to have mercy <clears throat> on the disabled. Even though that's how God chose to show mercy on us, Jesus came and got right inside our skin. He knew hunger and homelessness. He had to rely on his friends for money. He experienced the emotional pain of abandonment and betrayal by his closest friends. He experienced the social pain of not really fitting into Jewish culture because he wasn't married and he didn't have kids. He experienced the physical pain of humi being humiliated and stripped in public and tortured. And he experienced the spiritual pain of feeling a separation, a quietness from the heavens where he felt alone. And because Jesus got into our skin, Hebrews 4.16 tells us, we can go to Jesus with confidence to get mercy and help, find grace in our time of need. We can go with confidence. I, last night I was speaking at a AA and Al-Anon meeting in Laconer, and um, I was thinking, yeah, if you're an alcoholic or the family of an alcoholic, you know that when you go to those meetings, they will have mercy on you because they've experienced what you've experienced. They go with confidence for help because these are the people who have been there and done that. And that's what Jesus is saying. I've been there. I've lived a human life. You can come with confidence to me when you need mercy and grace. Our pain allows us to experience God's outrageous mercy flowing to us and I pray that we might allow God's outrageous mercy to flow through us. So the third point in how we learn mercy is that we practice it. Like everything else, we have to practice. 
the question always comes up. In fact, while I was preparing this, I had somebody ask me this very question. When you talk about the mercy of God or talk about being merciful to people, don't, don't you have to worry about being taken advantage of? Doesn't mercy lead to license? And I'd say, yes, yes, it does. I guarantee that if you live a life of mercy, you will be taken advantage of. I don't think there's any way around it. And, I, and it's funny that Jesus never gives provisos. And I'm not saying we aren't wise. I think we are wise. We listen to the Spirit. My husband and I have had a lot of people live with us over the years. And we always pray about it. And if either one of us has a concern, we don't do it. But we have had, we did short-term foster kids. We've had students. We've had family members, we've had, in fact, the kids stayed a long time, 18, 20 years. <laughs> they lived with us a long time. Uh, but we've had uh, people early in recovery, we've had people in transitions, and we've had money stolen, and we've had a credit card stolen, and we've been left with a bunch of junk in our basement. And we've had some bizarre situations. One time, Someone had kind of a nervous breakdown in our basement. We, had to, we called a therapist and said, what do we do? He's howling in the basement. So just so you know, if this happens to you, you take them to Harborview. <laughs> so I hope that doesn't deter you from having people in your home. <laughs> but yes, people of mercy will be taken advantage of. But I'd much rather that kingdom people be known as people of mercy and occasionally taken advantage of then be criticized as we are for being hard-hearted. This is from Kurt Vonnegut who says, for some reason the most vocal Christians among us never mention the Beatitudes. With tears in their eyes they demand the Ten Commandments be posted and that's Moses, not Jesus. But I've never heard one of them demand that the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, be posted anywhere. Blessed are the merciful in a, in a courtroom. Blessed are the peacemakers in the Pentagon. Give me a break. And this is the very, very criticism that Jesus levels to the religious in his day in Matthew 23. He makes this ridiculous comparison where he says, you're so busy doing religious things, you're taking the spices, the cumin and the oregano out of your cupboard and you're separating out 10% to make sure you're giving the right amount to God. And you're missing out on the weighty things, the important things, the things that God cares about, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Mercy, what we're talking about this morning, it's a weighty issue in the kingdom of God. We have all been recipients of God's outrageous mercy. And the reason we've been recipients is so that it will flow through us to others. So I'm going to talk about three ways that you may be asked to show mercy. One of the most powerful acts of mercy that we offer one another is that of forgiveness. And I don't have time to preach a sermon on forgiveness, but I'm not, forgiveness is not denying that something wrong or harmful happened. It's not making a small thing out of what someone did to us, but it is cutting the ropes of revenge and resentment. We're going to watch a short video. We're called to forgive. <laughs> We're called to forgive. And, and mercy is costly. Mercy is messy. But this is the place where we will receive mercy as well. I was thinking how 
in Amy's story, she got to know her birth, her, not her birth mom, her donor mom, the, uh, and that has developed a relationship where mercy is being given back and forth. And this is another one where we don't earn our forgiveness. As the Lord's Prayer says, we, we forgive as we've been forgiven. It isn't that we have to earn our forgiveness. We can't earn it. We can't do anything for the enormous debt that we owe to God. But we expose a heart that is not kingdom territory when we refuse to forgive. <clears throat> the second way I'd like to talk about an opportunity for us to show mercy, and that is simply by being present, by bearing witness to the pain of other people. One of the most painful aspects of suffering is having our pain not seen or denied by other people. This might, might not apply to all of you, but this is something I've been learning in my life because I have often said I'm colorblind. And I had a, a person of color tell me that that's pretending and acting as though her life has been like my life. I erased the painful experiences that she's had by saying that. I didn't see her. We offer mercy when we acknowledge and even invite others to tell us their story and really see them. Jesus heard all the time as he walked about, have mercy on me, son of David, have mercy on me. And he saw people crying out and he listened to them. And I, you're like me, I'm in a hurry. I work at an office with a coffee shop in front and sometimes I just want to go to the junction and get coffee. I don't want to talk to people. I don't want to see people. I don't have time uh, to interact. But mercy is, is messy, and mercy is time-consuming. And many of you do listen. You listen as a, as a part of your job. Teachers, therapists, policemen, social workers, spiritual directors, lots of you listen and and are present with the pain of others. And I thank you for, for the way that you are expressing mercy in life. And we have another short video. We show mercy by being present and by listening to the pain of others. And a third practical way that we get to participate in the mercy of God is by relieving misery. Jesus acted on behalf of those who called out for mercy. And we have some really awesome people. Of course, many of you are practicing mercy in many places in your life, but I just want to highlight a few places where you might want to step in. We have Stephen's ministers and deacons at this church. We have a group who are supporting foster families, and Rochelle Hume is the, is, is the head of that. And I'm not talking about that all of us have to become foster parents, but we can come alongside of foster parents and support them in the important work that they do. We have a group of people who are chaplains of presence at the junction who sit at the junction and pray for people and enter into conversation with people. And if you want to talk to Paul Ehrlichson, if you're interested in that. Bethany's also responding to the unfolding refugee crisis through our partnership with World Relief Seattle. World Relief has resettled 6,700 refugees in the last six months. They work hard at it. And right now, they're in kind of a difficult situation. They could use donations because their jobs depend on helping refugees get settled. Also, some of the money available for supporting refugees who are already here is going away, depending on what happens. 
So that's one way you could help. Another is they furnish two apartments a week as they are resettling people. You can participate by looking at their website. Our missions pastor at Bethany is Jack Brace, and you can reach him at jackb at churchbcc.org. But another thing that Bethany's doing is we, are, we have created a good neighbor team, which is a team of people who will come alongside World Vision and actually adopt a refugee family and help them in that first year of, of settling here in Seattle. Uh, that team is actually being trained right now, but Jack is building a list of people who might be interested in participating in a welcome team in the future. So let him know if you're interested. It would be awesome if North could be part of settling, working with a family, uh, and have a whole team from here. They're also doing a bike ride. Those of you who like to ride bikes and think it would be fun to ride from Seattle to Spokane through the Tri-Cities in June. <laughs> start, start working out. <laughs> it sounds, sounds like a pretty big ride. That, so some people from Bethany are doing that to raise money for refugee employment. God's outrageous mercy flows through us when we offer relief from misery. God's mercy to us is meant to flow through us to others. If you have been the recipient of grace, are you available to share that grace with others? The place where God was seen and met and talked to in the Old Testament was called the mercy seat. And it was this beautiful gold covering over the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was in the holy place in the temple. And the Ark was a box that contained the sort of symbols of things God had done for Israel. And so the mercy seat for us is Jesus. And it's represented at this table that we come to this morning. The bread and the wine are the um, instruments of us being able to connect with what Jesus did for us. So on the night that he died, he took the bread and he broke it with his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. This is the mercy of God for us. As we need mercy, this is the place we come for mercy and forgiveness. And in the same way, he took the cup and he passed it among his followers and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for your forgiveness. And this table at Bethany is not a denominational table, it's not Bethany's table, it's the Lord's table. So if you are a follower of Christ, and if you are leaning on him for your forgiveness and mercy, this table is open to you this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for the mercy that we find when we come to you. We need it. We continue to need it. We thank you for the forgiveness that Jesus paid for with his death. And we thank you that not only did Jesus die, but that he is raised. And we thank you that by his power, we can become kingdom people offering mercy to the world around us. God, would you be with us as we come today as a community to feast on the bread of life, to reflect on the ways that we are the recipients of your mercy. We give thanks in Christ's name. Amen.